I'll be in John chapter 11 this morning if you want to turn there. You'll see as we go that John chapter 11 includes an astounding statement. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's what Martha said to Jesus in John chapter 11. Lazarus is in a tomb and Martha's faith is grounded in an unshakable fact. Jesus could have done something. What are your if you had been here moments. Let's back up several verses from the one I just quoted from Martha. Let's back up all the way to verse 1. Verse 1 of John 11. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, He whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, And are you going there again? Lord, if you had been here, Martha says, my brother would not have died. This sickness is not to end in death, Jesus answered her. Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. His sister Martha later says to Jesus, if we open the tomb, it's going to stink. This has, I feel like Martha could look at Jesus and be like, um, Jesus, this has ended in death. Like, it has ended in death. Lazarus is in a tomb. You could have done something. If you had been here, you could have done something. Jesus often created situations that perplexed his followers, left them confused. What is he doing? The disciples are confused in John 11. Why is Jesus doing what he's doing? Because Jesus makes decisions. He orchestrates activity in the lives of his disciples that is sometimes confusing. I kind of feel like it could almost be like the unspoken rule of following Jesus. You're going to get confused somewhere along the way. We talk about things that are part of being disciples. Prayer, generosity, worship, fellowship, reading the scriptures, serving, discovering what your spiritual gifts are, all of these things. But I think something that kind of fits between the lines is confusion. It's sort of wondering like, what is Jesus doing exactly? I hope that's freeing. I hope you can be gentle with yourself, not necessarily trying to be a spiritual superhero who's in denial about some of the mysterious moments of following Jesus. Every disciple I find in the scriptures seems to have sometimes doubted a little bit or been confused a little bit or been waiting on some answer. In your life, are you wondering how something's going to turn out? I've got a few. I've got a few. Do you think Jesus could give you some clarity about your circumstances, that thing you're waiting on? Well, if you look at all of verse 4 from John 11, here's the full verse. Jesus said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. 
or buy it. That's the full picture. He'll do something to reveal his glory. He'll do something to bring himself glory. You may not know how your situation will turn out. I don't know how mine's going to turn out. But Christ is going to do something to reveal his glory. When we, we have to recognize that what Christ does will bring him glory, but part of that is revealing he is a compassionate, caring God. He's going to work something out. He's going to do something good for you. But ultimately, in the end, his good isn't just the full aim of God. It's not the only thing he's trying to do to give you and me something good. That's a little uncomfortable, if we're honest. We'd like it to just be, you know, he will just do something good for us. John's gospel talks about how much Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters. And we sang about it this morning. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. And John 11 backs it up. Love is used five times. The word love is used five times in these verses. But Jesus went beyond the love that's in his heart for these people. The orchestration of his response to their problems wasn't just to make their problems go away, which is where it gets uncomfortable because we'd like our problems to go away and quickly and our mysteries and our struggles to just go away. He loves us and he's working on those. But the ultimate purpose of Christ in the book of John is stimulating belief. He says this in John chapter 20, you can read it, but John's saying the ultimate goal of why I'm writing is that you would believe in Jesus. So love gets used five times, believe appears seven times. Romans 2 helps to weave these together. I'm going to flip ahead and just read something really quickly from Romans chapter 2. This is Paul writing to a group of Christians. He's shared the message about Christ with these Christians in Rome. And in chapter 2 of Romans, he says, Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. The kindness of God is leading to repentance. They're, they're connected together, this idea of love and belief. And what's happening is Christ is orchestrating a situation so that people believe in him. God's answer is no for Mary and Martha and Lazarus until he orchestrates a glorious yes. Along the way, God's deeds sometimes stimulate confusion, but there's more. Let's hear from God again. We'll do verses 16 to 23 now. We'll make our way through most of chapter 11, but for now we're just going to do 16 through 23. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. You'll remember that Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to go back to a place I've been before. And the disciples said they were trying to stone you and you're going there again. Now Thomas says, let us also go so that we may die with him. Verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha and Thomas have such different reactions. It's so interesting. Thomas, let us also go with him that we may die too. That's a really radical sort of sounding answer. Wow, that is, that is intense and radical. Meanwhile, Martha says, you could have stopped my brother's death. 
Who do you connect with? Is your instinct a little more to have the courage of Thomas and say, let's go, let's die with him. I'm all in, let's go. Or is it a little bit more of a faithful courage that says, I know what you could have done. I know what you're capable of. What are you doing? Because I know you can overcome everything. The more that I sat with this personally, the more I pondered these two people and their responses in this whole kind of situation, the more I came to a piece that what Thomas is saying and what Martha is saying kind of intertwine and overlap somehow, that they're two sides of the same coin or some piece that puts this together. Thomas basically is saying, I'm going to die with Jesus because Jesus can stop death. Martha was right. Jesus can stop death. Jesus can overcome death. And I think Thomas is so courageous and so convicted and so all in with his answer because he's saying, I'll die with him because he can make me live forever. I think that's Thomas' mentality. I think that's what he's thinking through. And it reminds me of Romans 8, where Paul, again in Romans, speaking to these same people, says, nothing, neither life or death, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know if you identify more with Martha. I don't know if you identify more with Thomas. Maybe it's someone else. There's not the point is not to identify or pick who. I just suggest that there's people talking with him And I get the sense from John 11 that he's not going to work with us and work in us if we're not talking with him because they're both dialoguing with him about what's going on. Martha had paradoxical trust. She wasn't some robotic believer. She sought God. She talked with Christ. She didn't quit trusting and seeking. She didn't quit wanting God's promises. God's deeds depend on that kind of paradoxical trust. Christ interacted with people who were taking these real risks and working through real issues. That's prayer. They're being his people and they're being his children and he's responding to them. He's interacting with them. He's talking with them. When I read this, I see humans, I see disciples, I see Christ followers, people who are following him and they're trusting him in the middle of paradoxes. They are deeply confused and they're not saying, I'm just binging on Netflix. I'm just, you know, scrolling on my phone. I'm just like, you know, having coffee and just, you know, kind of in denial and ignoring life. I'm just not sitting at the beach, just eh, whatever. They're deeply invested. They're deeply committed and paying attention. This is their life. This is their faith. This is their brother who's dead. This is their life where people are coming over and saying, let me comfort you. Let me help you. Let, you know, they're not living in denial. They are confused. Their life seems way out of balance. There's all this challenge and change going on. But they're trusting Christ when they could just be fraught with doubt. God's deeds demand risks and paradoxical trust. Let's see what else scripture has to say, starting in verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, that's Mary, when Jesus therefore saw Mary weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. We've just finished talking about the devotion of Thomas and the confidence of Martha. And in response to them, I think Jesus unleashes a mighty love. He unleashes this tremendous force of compassion right into the situation. Verse 33 says he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Verse 34, he goes to the tomb. Verse 35, he's weeping. 
he's completely responding to the people around him. And he has this mighty love that comes out for them. God's deeds draw from Christ's compassion. It's Romans 8 all over again. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. This faith journey includes confusion. It includes this paradoxical trust, this risk-taking, this courage in a sense. But the faith actually depends on Christ's compassion. That he's going to be moved. He's going to go to the tomb. He's going to act with love. He's going to care. He's going to talk. He's going to pay attention. He's going to feel emotions inside himself of love and compassion for those that he cares about. Let's see verses 38 to 43 from Scripture. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. This is more detail of the same situation. He's deeply moved. He comes to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. We've heard this before. This will not end in death, though, Jesus says to her before. Now he says, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Why don't we experience more miracles? Many of you, I'm sure, have heard this. If you don't know the end of the story, Lazarus comes forth. And no one's talking about a stench anymore. No one's saying, let's go die with him. No one's saying, you coulda, shoulda, woulda. Lazarus comes forth. But why don't more miracles happen? Well, I think part of it is Martha and Mary's experience shows that miracles don't work like Siri or search engines. It's not a microwave kind of experience. Now, a little more complicated answer is that miracles have many sides. And I'm just drawing from the scriptures when I bring this out. The book of James, for example, makes a very clear, very simple statement. You have not because you ask not. The book of Daniel gives a little bit more information in the book of Daniel There's a work that God wants to do. Daniel's praying for it, and it's taking time to happen on earth. And over time, later in the book of Daniel, what's realized is that there was spiritual warfare happening, that a a servant of Satan was resisting the angel of God, and there was battle taking place. So as Daniel's praying and Daniel's waiting, spiritual warfare is happening that's preventing him from getting an answer, that's preventing God from working. Gospel of John adds a little bit this morning A little bit more, another layer, another piece of this puzzle, if you will, that Jesus' miracles and actions always point to a greater teaching, to a higher truth, to some other thing. He does a real miracle. He actually raises Lazarus from the dead. He does the miracle, but the miracle teaches a higher truth. In the book of John, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So he's not just saying, let me do the miracle, but he's saying, let me tell you who I am. Let me show you who I am. God is a miracle worker, but I think he orchestrates his miracles so that they communicate a truth. He doesn't, seem, he doesn't seem to just do miracles to make the world a better place. He seems to orchestrate the miracles so that it's mercy with a message. And it seems like only he really knows exactly how to orchestrate that so that we get the mercy and we get the message. 
I think for Mary and Martha and Lazarus as well, this miracle included a journey of their own heart. It seems like the timing of it required some sort of faith, some sort of trust, some sort of journey they were going on to walk with Jesus. One of our top three values as a church, one of the things we're most interested in is growing to be more like Jesus, to, to become like Jesus is something we're striving for as individuals. And growth like that depends on faith, it depends on trusting Jesus, and it takes time. We can learn from the faith journey of other people. Martha, Mary, Thomas, the other people in the story, Lazarus as well, they trusted the Lord. They weren't unbelieving people. It wasn't that they didn't have enough faith. But I think we can learn from them that there was some journey they were on, some path, some timing that was necessary. It wasn't a cookbook. It wasn't a set of instructions from Ikea. This is how you put the desk together with all these specially made screws and it comes with the tool and you just put it all together and it happens. There's something about it that's an adventure of faith. It's a height and a depth and a breadth that God's called us into and it requires faith and trust and effort. So think about how these people are on that journey and compare your own journey. What I see in John 11 shows that there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle, that miracles happen, but there's more going on than we realize. Maybe there's healing or inner work. There may be things that need to get brought up and talked about with the Lord in prayer or with someone that you trust, some kind of inner journey. But on, at, its, at its core, like Thomas, Martha, Mary, they're responding to this out of who they really are. It's not just external. It's not just show up and say, Jesus, you could have done this. But it's a deeper heartfelt need in their life that's moving them to talk to Jesus and moving them to trust him. So I feel a little bit like I'm beginning to better understand some of these miracles. How does God supply these glorious answers to prayer? How does he do these tremendous victories? Because when I was a younger Christian, I just sort of read these at a surface level, and I was like, well, it seems like they prayed, and it just kind of happened. I don't know, like flipping a switch, you know? I mean, I, I just thought like things happened easily, which was on my own personal immaturity. Like, in fact, I realize now, like, almost nothing happens easily, like, even the things that are easy for me to do took somebody else a tremendous amount of work, like eating your salad today at the picnic, right? Like, I'm going to love it quickly, and it's going to be like, man, that was amazing. What a great taste. But all I had to do was scoop it up, right? Somebody else had to do a lot of thinking and chopping and buying and planning and setting, and it's like that. It's not just easy. And in this case, in John 11, this glorious miracle comes to people who had radical commitment. They had desperate dependence. They had a stressful, sad reality. They were defeated and discouraged, and they said, I'm going to follow Jesus anyway. I'm going to trust him anyway. They had this spiritual confusion going on. They had real risks. They had paradoxical trust. At the core of it, they said, you could have raised him, but you didn't. Now Lazarus is dead, and Thomas is saying, my own death is all but given. Let's go with Jesus. Let's go with Jesus. How many of you love action movies? with heroes or heroic actions, heroines doing great things. I've noticed this trend about these movies, and I think this is generally true. You can kind of go the sports route with it, where like the team is in the last game of the playoffs, like today's Cape Cod Baseball League, for example, today's game three, and it's like, Today is like the day, and I'm sure people who like get into sports will be like ready to tell this story of sports. You can do it with war, where certain battles and certain wars throughout history have 
come down and it seemed really difficult and really challenging and really stressful and frightening. And then there's more fantastic movies like Lord of the Rings and Marvel and all these other kind of movies. There's all these stories. But one of the big things that's always going on in these stories is there comes like a really dark moment where everything just seems really bad. The team's going to lose or the military's going to lose or the orcs are rampaging down the hill. I'm not a great Lord of the Rings person, but I know there's orcs and they're like rampaging down and it seems like in the CGI there's like tens of millions of them chasing and down they come running down the hill. And it's at that darkest of moments when the music's pounding and things seem at their worst that a king shows up with a conquering army. That's how these stories go. It always is at the worst moment that the running back breaks through the line or the batter gets just the right hit and it goes just over the wall and scores, right? That's, now that's sometimes like these fictional stories, but it points to a greater reality that we see here, that when things got to their worst, when all seemed lost and darkest and hardest, it was then when it's the fourth day and the body stinks and the people who came to say nice things to Martha and Mary are saying, couldn't he, if he loved them that much, couldn't he have just stopped this? Couldn't he have just like kept Lazarus from dying to begin with? Please don't roll the stone. You know, like the, all that, when all that stuff is happening, the king arrives with power and glory and love. And he says, this is not going to end in death. God's answer is no until he orchestrates a glorious yes. Perhaps we don't see some miracles because our situation isn't hard enough. And I want to be really, really clear because I think sometimes people get hurt by this. I'm not saying that anyone doesn't have enough faith. That's where oftentimes, you know, people can be kind of like, well, if you only had more faith. I'm not saying if you only had more faith. Martha had plenty of faith. She looked at Jesus and said, you could have stopped this. So she totally has the right faith. She's got the right ideas. She's got the right commitment. She's talking to him about it, like everything. Thomas, who of us could look at Thomas and say, you don't have enough faith. I mean, he said, let us go die with him. What more can Thomas do? They've got enough faith. They knew the truth and they believed it. They had the faith, but their defeat in the way God looked at it hadn't gotten dark enough yet, hadn't gone on long enough yet, wasn't hard enough yet for God to say, now I'm satisfied to show how great my son is. Now I'm ready to show how powerful my son is. So God said no until he orchestrated a glorious yes. The last thing I want to reflect on is Jesus at the end of this chapter. He says, he starts praying. The stone gets rolled away. He raises his eyes and he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. God's deeds come by prayer. I wish I could say it was planning. I wish I could say it was hard work and lost sleep and human brilliance and effort. I wish I could say, like, if, if we can get all these things right. But Jesus is saying, I know that you always heard me. I said this for the sake of them so that they would believe in me. But I know that you always hear me. He goes right to prayer. He goes right to prayer. He's talking about rolling away the stone. He's doing a real thing. There's real human faith. But God's deeds come by prayer. Jesus makes his highest principle very clear that God's deeds come by prayer. In my early 20s, I'd been following Christ about five years, maybe just like three, three, four, five years. And my, my pastor said that at that time, he said something I've never forgotten. He said in a sermon with God, timing is more important than time. 
And it was really helpful to me because I often think like, look, it's been 30 days. Like, do you know, you know what I mean? Like, like I need answers. And he, you know, through the sermon, I mean, he wasn't looking just at me, but he's like, with God, timing is more important than time. And it felt like he was talking to me. And I've always held on to that because we're always asking the question or we're sometimes asking the question, how long until God says yes? How long? How long? There's even a scripture. How long, O Lord? God's answer is no until he orchestrates a glorious yes. There will be people asking questions that seem embarrassing. There'll be doubts about how difficult this is and the laws of nature, kind of the unwritten rules of life say, if you roll that stone away, it is going to stink like like, this is going to be bad. This, this, is getting, this is bad, and it's getting worse. <laughs> it's going to stink. We're going to think these, these simple, ordinary human truths. But all that darkness and all that disappointment and the failure and the hurt and the shame and the struggle, it's all in the mix. But with God, timing is more important than time. He's going to say no until he orchestrates a glorious yes. What you're waiting on isn't so much God's ability to act, can he do it, but his arrangement of your circumstances. His sense of timing sometimes leads us more into challenges. He's walking beside us, though, allowing our faith to start to define the situation. It's a test. There's risk and confusion and working through things. And it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds until Christ reveals two things. I care and I'm about to do something. He's saying, no, not yet. In the meantime, we endure confusion and we bravely risk faith. I'm sorry, we bravely face risks and we boldly hope in God. We're applying what we've learned. We're like Martha saying, I know what you can do. I know who you are. I know you're the resurrection and the life. I know what you've told me, but I'm not seeing it. And he says, I know, I know. I was talking to a friend of mine, Austin, this week. It'd been several months and we were catching up. And I had one of those comments come out of my mouth that make me sound smarter than I am. I don't know if you ever have this or more <laughs> faithful to God and like a deeper, you know, person. And he, he didn't really let me get away with it because he's known me for about 20 years, but it was one of those moments where it's like, wow, that sounded great. And for the record, Austin has also called me out sometimes and been like, what are you doing? You don't, you know, so, but we're talking on the phone and he had some things and I had some things and, and we're kind of talking about like things that don't happen or haven't yet happened. And in the middle of that conversation, I said to him, God's not yet is always better than my right now. And I just was like, what did I say that? Like, where did that come from? You know, and you know where it came from. It's because, you know, I mean, I'm just like sleep deprived and rolling through life and just trying to like keep the car between like the yellow lines and the white line. Like that's like my main goal. And these things come out of my mouth and I'm like, yeah, that's who God is. We want something now, which is understandable. But God's not yet is always better than our right now. He is saying no until he orchestrates a glorious yes. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's what Martha said to Jesus as we began, but there's more to her story. Because I paused in the middle of what she said. Here's the rest of what she said. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Because God's deeds come by prayer. She knew that too. Martha said to Christ these four key words, even now, I know. Even now I know. God's deeds come by prayer. For all the moments when you say, Lord, if you had, or if you feel like you're this close to one of those moments and you're like, Lord, if you don't, 
Lord, if you don't, because we feel it in our heart and we're, you know, half smart as human beings that we're like, Lord, if you don't, I can see where this is going because we know life pretty well. For all of those moments, I encourage you, finish by saying what Martha said. Even now, I know. Whatever comes this week, live with hope. Have the faith of Martha and Thomas. You have a God who hears your if you hads and if you don't. He hears it. He's okay with it because he's greater than it. He's working. He's got compassion. He's got power and he's working. So all you have to say is even now I know. Let's pray. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your word. When we think about miracles, we think about our ordinary human lives, but it's also incredible that you preserved this story for us. It's an unbelievable gift to us so that at the end of a worship service and hopefully on a Monday and a Tuesday, on a Wednesday, in the morning and in the evening, when we're tired and hungry and angry, when we're saying if you had and when we're feeling like if you don't, we've got a moment right now to join Martha and join Thomas and Mary and others and say, even now I know. Even now I know. So I pray for my dear brothers and sisters this afternoon, this week. Would we have the faith? Would we have the memory? Would you work in us, Holy Spirit, to plant this truth deep in us so that with conviction, with self-awareness, we could say, even now I know. Because we're able to say, even now, even now, this, 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 all this stuff is true. But we know that you'll talk to God. You always live to make intercession for us, and we thank you and we praise you. You change everything. We thank you and praise you for what you're orchestrating even now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.